0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zara Yunus, and joining me today once more is Amber Rahim Shamsi. Those of you who've been tuning in or follow Pakistani news are familiar with Amber. She's an award winning journalist and was on the podcast um, as the first uh, guest in 2022 on season three, essentially, which is what we're on, um, because both she and I agreed that. This year, politics is going to dominate the economy. We're more than halfway through the year. And that's exactly what's <laughs> happened. And I was listening to um, the, the podcast I did with Amber at that point in time ahead of this discussion. And she said something very interesting that Pakistani politics is dysfunctional and it's almost like everyone's on psychedelics. Um, and I think Amber, <laughs> you were on point with that. Um, and and we talked about whether the PDM or the PMLN had a plan. And, you know, people should go listen to that episode as well, just to see how uh, on point on many of the things Amber was. Um, of course, none of us anticipated the vote of no confidence, but we had talked about that the fact that William Ran can easily go away if he's pushed out and and things like that. And clearly, uh, much of that those scenarios have played out. So. Today, we're going to talk to Ambar about what's happening, what's next. Of course, uh, yesterday, um, uh, the Supreme Court said that Hamza was no longer chief minister. So we're recording this podcast the day after that happened. And we still are not clear, at least I am not clear, on what the strategy for the PDM, especially the PMLN, is going to be. So Ambar, thank you once again for joining us and welcome once again to Pakistan Ami.
1: My pleasure, was there. But I will say that we're sort of nearly over the halfway line to the year. And I'm frankly exhausted. Politics has been exhausting. The economy has been exhausting. And and frankly, I'm sick of the rain in Karachi as well.
0: And and neither the IMF uh, has approved the program and nor have we had elections. So we're both exhausted, but there's still a lot of action to come, so to speak. Um, But tell us like what's going on? What have you been observing? And while politics has been dominating everything else, um, is there light at the end of the tunnel? And if so, is that another train about to hit us? Or is it truly, we're gonna be out of the tunnel anytime soon?
1: So I think the big question now mid-year, and, and it was actually a question at the beginning of the year when I spoke to you as well is, when will Pakistan have its next election? Uh, and there are three or four, I, I think who or what will determine that is, is some of the are some of the questions that we would need to ask in order to find answers. So is it going to be Imran Khan and the Pakistan Tariq insaf who after uh, yesterday's Supreme Court decision removing Hamza and the by-elections before that, is actually in a position of power at the moment, um, has more cards in his, his hand, in, in his hand. And he's obviously been advocating for early elections. And I want to sort of remind viewers as well that at the time that the vote of no confidence was being held, there were secret negotiations uh, between or at least an attempt at that time that um, uh, uh, Imran Khan, when he was prime minister, he was trying to use back channels through the military to talk to the opposition at that time uh, with with an offer, which is, you know, let's hold fresh elections, don't uh, um, uh, present the vote of no confidence against me. And and that did not happen because the opposition parties at that time were determined to go ahead. So um, yeah, so we're back where, uh, the same question, which is when will the next elections be? Imran Khan has the upper hand at the moment, given that he has a government in Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa in the north, uh, as well as Punjab, which is very, very key, which is a, considered a bellwether province, if you will. Uh, you know, um, nearly half Pakistan's population, key to um, uh, government in, in, the, in the Federation as well. So, you know, uh, he has more of the cards at the moment. Uh, I would like to differentiate uh, between PDM and the current national unity or coalition government because the PDM comprises uh, uh, Maulana Fazul Rahman, uh, the JUF uh, head is, um, you know, he's a chairperson of that, but PMLN is the other big key player. Um, the ANP, the Yamami National Party, which is you know, a Pashtun uh, uh, left-wing party uh, based largely in KP, exited along with the Pakistan People's Party. Uh, so let's let's be clear that we, let's not call them PDM. Let's just call them a national coalition, or coalition government. So the PDM has been resisting calls, and these the question of uh, when the next election should be came up a couple of times uh, in the few months uh, that they have been in the government. Uh, most crucially, uh, when they had the upper hand, which was just after the victory of the vote of no confidence, Shabazz Sharif was elected um, as prime minister. Uh, the Imran Khan government was still unpopular. uh, So they had the cards at that time. They could have called for fresh elections and they chose not to. Um, And the question at that time, and you've been waiting for the IMF deal to happen, so have I, because the question at that time was, well, will the caretaker sign off on it? There needs to be some kind of continuity. Um, um, What are the options? Uh, Should um, the uh, unity government In particular, when we think of unity government, though, is that because the PMLN has a prime minister, finance minister, you know, these key ministries respond, uh, the Ministry of Petroleum as well, key ministries that um, seem to have been responsible for the political backlash that we'll talk about as well. But um, the decision at that time was um, the uh, PDM, as well as the Pakistan People's Party would continue, take those tough decisions. And really, uh, just continue until next year. And they're very, very sort of. Uh, and these decisions happened. Uh, if you remember, uh, the entire sort of close cabinet, including Shabashri, flew to London, met with the PMLN supremo Nawaz Sharif. You know, had a chit chat. There was a lot of criticism. It was like, well, this government is just formed. Why are they flying off to London to consult with uh, Nawaz Sharif? But you know, there it is. And the decision, again, after much back and forth, was we will continue. The Pakistan People's Party has also, also insisted that uh, this current dispensation. On, has to on that, sorry Biden. to interrupt, yeah.
0: um, on, on the trip to London, um, I, I don't know what you've heard, but I've heard conflicting stories about the fact that Nawaz had pushed for elections. They had agreed at that time, Shabazz mm-hmm. and company, to with Nawaz's instruction. And by the time they landed in Islamabad, the decision was changed. And then Nawaz was like, you do what you want and don't come to me. Is that true? Because something I've heard, and I don't know if you've heard something similar about this as well.
1: So, so it has been clear that Nawaz Sharif has not been in favor of continuation. He's expressed his dissatisfaction. There's been, uh, you know, murmurings and and uh, disgruntlement, if you will. Uh, and I would say that's also interesting that after the uh, uh, um, the kind of the decision by the Supreme Court to um, maintain that you know uh, Pervez remains as Chief Minister. I think Nawaz Sharif's disgruntlement, you know, I, I could actually hear it in his voice, his you know grandfatherly boomer uncle voice as well, you know, and, and to use Urdu here, what circus is this and that kind of thing. But you know, those uh, the, those have continued. It is really helped, you know, the Pakistan People's Party has continued. Actually, I think, I think they've been very constant in that. Whereas you see the division with the PMLN about continuation. Uh, Shahbaz Sharif, I think was some of the mistakes that he made was, uh, you know, bringing Hamza as chief minister. That was again, I think just in terms of optics, um, has has played very badly Um, to have a father and son both at the center as well as in Punjab. Um, I think just in terms of responsibility, they made some decisions that obviously proved very unpopular, which was a petrol subsidy, removing it. Uh, slowly, slowly, and you you could speak better about this, but, you know, increasing petrol prices, um, not thinking that they would have to bear the political cost. So I think um, these questions of when the elections will be held, I don't think that the current national unity government really has a lot of cards in its stack at the moment. Uh, the other, obviously, I think the economy, is that going to determine whether the next elections are held or not? We're still waiting for that IMF deal. We're still waiting for that money. Now it's going to be in August. Let's see. Um, or are we waiting for the army or the military establishment? Or I would say now with the Supreme Court decision as well, that we need to not just call it the military establishment. Let's go back to calling it the establishment because that includes bureaucrats and, and the judiciary, right? So is it going to be determined by, by the establishment? Is it going to be determined by the army chief appointment? Um, you know, these are all questions I think that are really important. Um, and now are being debated as well. Um, at the moment, uh, just as we speak, elections seem to be on the horizon, but again, you never know.
0: That's, that's fascinating. And I think um, the whole, your point on the the political cost that they've beared, right? Mm-hmm. On especially with petroleum price increases from the time we spoke on this podcast in January to today, the rupee has slid over 30%, right? So it was roughly 180 at that time. Um, now it's at 240 and good luck if you can find it at 240 right it's not even available at that rate in the open market um and that reminds me of like the tale of the king and his sly advisor who told the king that if he blind everybody in the kingdom we can rule uh because we will only be the ones with eyesight and it turns out that wasn't that great advice uh because once (laughs) the kingdom's uh, people the subjects were blind Um, they basically you know a mob came outside the palace and killed the king and the the advisor and before Mm -hmm. the king was killed he asked the advisor what's going on and he said the people think we're possessed by demons because we are the only ones who claim eyesight and no one else can see Um, so they think we're like some crazy demons that have come to rule over them (laughs) so they'll kill us and that reminds me of like this particular just Pakistani politic politicians in general but the PDM or the opposition at that time that was opposed to Imran Khan, because they used to berate him over things like the slide of the dollar or the hike in petroleum prices or the taxes they had to collect in petroleum, right? And there was always like petrol bomb, petrol bomb, which has been with us uh, for years before Imran Khan mm-hmm. as well. And then to expect that we will come to power and then do the same things. And that won't hurt us politically, because the people will understand that Mm. we have to make tough decisions was a bit like outlandish, to say the least, and they've paid the price for that as well. But from your point of view, my question was like, how big of a dent has sort of the the narrative taken? Is it purely or or from your point of view, is it mainly driven by these tough choices that they've had to make and, and the inflation that has been unleashed? Or do you think also that the voter in Punjab, the core PMLN voter, which obviously was energized by Nawaz rhetoric of both though, and now we see Khan has taken on that same narrative as well and co-opted mm-hmm. it essentially. Was the voter disappointed with this as well? Because in our podcast, we talked about this is all about the selection and the military establishment, mm-hmm. which at least since 1998-99 wanted Shahbaz in Islamabad. This is documented in various books, including Naseem Zahras Uh, Mm -hmm. fantastic from Kargil to the coup they finally had their selection they got their blue-eyed boy Shabash in Islamabad and so I'm wondering what do you think about this uh, this decline in political capital from tough choices but also the fact that their voters saw through it and said you know what like I'm sick and tired of you striking a deal when you talk about vote that though I actually want you to stand by it (laughs) and I'm not going to stand by you if you go back on
1: Okay, I mean, I wish there were more exit polls, uh, so I had statistics and facts uh, to back this up. Uh, But given that, you know, um, there's been a lot of discussion as well as reporters on the ground, spoken to people, um, I think a few things are pretty clear. A few things, uh, one of the things is that Shabazz's reputation as an efficient administrator and a better governor has taken a hit. And while we could, you know, People who uh, look at the economy seriously, like you, uh, would say, well, you know, there's no other choice but to take back the petrol subsidy. They're, you know, that's responsible. You can't really sell it to a public that's already been beaten by inflation and other things for, for a couple of years. And when you've obviously, as you pointed out, been selling the rhetoric that whether it's the petrol price, the IMF-led budget, all of those things, uh, we're going to make it better. Um, and just for the
0: audience, on from a statistical perspective, because I've been looking at that data mm-hmm. since 2019 and before this price hike and this new wave of inflation, inflation in Pakistan was 40 plus percent in cumulative terms versus 20 percent in India and Bangladesh. So, yes, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right that Main Street was not in a mood to bear more inflation after 40 plus percent inflation in three years.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And let's also bear in mind that uh, inflation uh, the global recession uh, supply shocks uh, russia ukraine it's hitting uh, economies and politics everywhere look at italy uh, where the uh, you know prime minister just resigned uh, look at what for instance the, the tussle between the tories uh, two tory contenders in, in the uk uh, they're talking about you know tax versus tax cuts versus minimum tax cuts, inflation, cost of living. Uh, look at Joe Biden worried about the midterms and and obviously his popularity. So it isn't just uh, the current dispensation or you know uh, Imran Khan b- before this current dispensation. So obviously this was a big election issue, um, and you saw that. For instance, I, I was looking at the numbers in terms of the turnout. So you have some more statistics. Um, Imran Khan not just was able to energize his base because he launched this very aggressive campaign, Um, you know, in terms of a series of rallies, social media, uh, interviews with favorite um, influencers and media personalities and anchors. You know, we could criticize it all alike, but but that blitzkrieg was really effective as well. Uh, Whereas because the PMLN and the National Unity Government, you know, what was their narrative is, is the question. What was their propaganda machine? Nobody's going to buy a responsible statecraft when you see that your grocery bills are impacted and you really can't pay for uh, some of the things that you were used to paying for. Um, you know, obviously the first cuts that you get are schooling and health. So people's lives were difficult. So you really can't switch over from that. So let's just let's just say that um, in every I mean, I think there was a the turnout for a um, by-election. Just bear in mind, by-elections were on those twenty seats. Uh, that um, the um, MPAs from PTI, because they defected, they voted for uh, Hamza, Shahbaz, the su- uh, Supreme Court had said that they, those votes can't be counted. And then obviously there's going to be a by-election on them. So there are 20 seats. Um, these seats in 2018 went to about 11 uh, were PTI's um, um, uh, PTI um, candidates, and then about nine were independents that are later joined Um, the PTI afterwards through Jahangir Khan Darin and his, you know, magic jet plane. But besides that, I mean, there was an increase in turnout uh, around 14%. Now, a lot of people are saying this could be uh, the turnout was obviously because Imran Khan energized his base, played the victim card, played the religion card, played the conspiracy card. It doesn't really matter. It was effective. It worked. Uh, At the same time, you had inflation. There was a little bit of disillusionment, this could have meant that the PMLN voter might have kept away. We also know that there was a lot of infighting on the awarding of tickets to PMLN. So a lot of the old guard or loyalists who had gotten PMLN tickets were opposed in certain uh, constituencies. Um, uh, And then broadly, if we talk about the sort of national propaganda machine, the PMLN had really sort of positioned itself as anti-establishment, as you pointed out a little before as well. They couldn't say that anymore. Uh, they couldn't sell that anymore. Mariam Nawaz obviously um, was thrown in because she's obviously a crowd puller. She pulled a few crowds, but really, um, again, when people are crushed by inflation um, and uh, you see that the Shabash Sharif or PMLN has sort of has not flip-flopped on on the anti-establishment narrative, um, that kind of victim card, that kind of uh, the, the uh, sort of naming of military chiefs and serving officers names that um, Nawaz Shreef memorably did in Guzravala in 2019. And then where we are, where um, Imran Khan has taken up that mantle and has just run with it. And it's a far more effective social media team um, and has done it in different ways. I think where Nawaz Shreef sort of planted the seeds, I think Imran Khan sort of nurtured and, and, and growed it. So, so um, I think that these were a few factors that you could see were responsible for PMLN's defeat. And while PMLN might sort of spin and say, well, these, n- none of these were our seats to begin with, we increased our voter uh, sort of um, count as well, you know, it doesn't really matter. Perception is that, and, and we can see that how it was borne out in terms of the um, election or, you know, of, of Prave Elahi, and subsequently the Supreme Court judgment as well, where perception is now that Imran Khan is you know, ascendant. Um, his blitzkrieg has succeeded. Uh, the current dispensation is, you know is, is, has paid that political cost. And uh, that's, that's really it. So I think sort of um, let's see where the next few months goes. I mean, I think now we're looking at August as sort of key in terms of the IMF tranche. <clears throat> There's been a lot of talk about default and how default is not inevitable. and I, I know again, you'd speak better about it. Uh, But I think, uh, you know, um, at the moment, the current sort of ruling government is in trouble. It's in trouble because it really doesn't have a counter-narrative or propaganda to sell. Um, There's talk about they may impose Governor Raj in Punjab, uh, which, you know, for people who don't know what Governor Raj is, essentially that you declare an emergency uh, and that the governor takes back uh, executive powers from the chief minister, except... The problem is that it's not really possible post 2010 on post the 18th amendment, uh, just because you need the provincial assembly uh, to uh, you know sort of sign off on it. And the provincial assembly uh, is is at the moment obviously chief minister is Pervez Elahi and and the numbers are really thin for the PMLN and the the ruling coalition. Uh, you've just had not uh, there's one contested seat from the by-election in Rawalpindi. You also have one uh, MPA who has been disqualified because of, I think his his uh, degree or something like that. So um, the numbers are really thin. Um, you still have obviously a, a speaker election to come as well. So, I mean, there's a, I, I think they're on really thin ground here in terms of Governor Raj grasping at straws, really. Uh, Maryam Nawaz, um, who is, you could say the, the again, the crowd puller represents Nawaz Sharif and that school of thought, which is, you know, we need to be more aggressive is that's what she's advocating. Whereas her uncle, Shabaz Sharif, Tends to be, um, you know, has a softer approach. Um, has is a bridge between Pindi is, is considered to be a, a bridge between Pindi and PMLN. Um, and more conciliatory, cannot do that kind of sort of aggressive, uh, hit you in the face kind of politics. That sort of works at rallies and and the stumps and, uh, that Imran Khan does, that Maryam Nawaz does. So um, really, I think the PMLN especially more so than the Pakistan People's Party is between a rock and a hard place at the moment. Um, and uh, yeah, we're now waiting until August for the next Christian yeah. turn. And Actually, I think before the... August even, because I think at the moment we have a speaker election um, that has to come in the Punjab assembly. And now what will Imran Khan do next is is another question in order to sort of prompt uh, elections. And what will the military establishment do in order to prompt elections? So. Uh, you know, lots of And, and on top of that,
0: Khan, in my view, also has to convince Pervez Elahi to be a two-day uh, sort of speak, <laughs> minister. What mm-hmm. my question has been: What if Pervez Elahi says no? Like we're going through August next year. What does Khan do at that point, right? So that will also be interesting because it's not that cut and dry. Like we know that Pervez Elahi no. has his own issues with Imran Khan, and Imran Khan has his own issues with Pervez Elahi. So that will be another sort of subplot so to speak in this larger <laughs> uh scheme of things the coming back to the central plot here right mm-hmm. um obviously uh historically if you look at pakistan like the mid-90s 1993 is like something as fresh in my mind because at that time there was this political saga between the prime minister and the president mm-hmm. they reached a standoff and general kakar sort of was the guarantor and took resignations from both of them together, and then held elections, and that brought Benazir mm-hmm. back to power, right? As, as we know it. At this point, General Bajwa is not capable of being a guarantor. He's essentially a lame duck, and he doesn't mm-hmm. have credibility, any credibility. But in <coughs> nine two thousand seven, then if you look at it, Musharraf faced a similar situation, and he pushed Kayani as his successor. We kind of knew that he was coming in, running the ISI, and that you know. Uh, Kayani would manage the transition. We don't have that either. In this situation, how do we reach an off-ramp when the key central player in this, like yes, you mm-hmm. said establishment is broader than the military, but the military establishment is at the core, is, mm-hmm. is in this instance especially. How do they act when in fact we know there's an internal divide within the institution? Khan will obviously not be okay with Bajwa running this election, so to speak or over guaranteeing this election, so to speak, as a quote-unquote neutral. Um, he's also on his way out. There's no clarity on mm. who his successor will be. But there are also still questions that he's technically open to one more year, right? Because that's the sort <laughs> of, the, the, if you read the legal sort of opinion mm-hmm. on this, there's three plus one is what people tell me at least. On yeah, that.
1: actually, because it's based on age. Um, yes.
0: So, the, yeah. So wh- where does the military stand in all of this and how does it sort of, function when its preeminent role in these crises has been the role of a guarantor and now it's incapable of being that guarantor primarily because its chief is a lame duck.
1: Yes. So the other question at the moment is that, uh, look, I think uh, there are two things here. Political legitimacy. That's been a question that's been, um, I think that's been plaguing and is responsible for much of the political uncertainty that you've seen in the last few years, which is since 2018. Um, Imran Khan did not have, political legitimacy, he's admitted as much in many, several interviews, right, uh, in many different ways. He's hinted at it or he said it directly as well. Um, this Most famous was, one of
0: them being that he was like, we used to get blackmailed by our coalition allies yeah. and have to call the ISI to get us the votes. He's clearly yes, exactly. said
1: that. He's clearly said that. He's also sort of uh, uh, Kazi Faiziza. He's also dumped it on on the military establishment as well, Justice Kazi Faizisa, uh, um as well. So in many ways, you know, uh, political legitimacy was a problem for Imran Khan and it is a problem for the current dispensation because it really is just a continuation. These current assemblies are actually. So I think in that sense, Imran Khan is right. Um, Unfortunately, you you can only get political legitimacy if you have a free and fair election with a neutral, and I, I use the word right now, with an independent, let's just say, independent election commission of Pakistan. An actually neutral umpire that is where the um, military establishment stays out of political affairs, uh, as well as I think, uh, given the last few months, you know, I remember we talked about judicial politics at the top of the year, you have assumed even more importance in the last few months. So, um, it requires everybody to, to sort of confirm to their constitutional role. Who's going to do that? Who is doing that? Uh, We've had lots of talk about a soft intervention, which frankly, I'm not even sure if I can say this, it seems, you know, no, I can't can't even say it, but it's just, it's such an odd thing. I I think it's only in Pakistan, going back to the whole theme of psychedelic, it's just only in Pakistan can you sort of come up with that kind of uh, terminology, soft intervention. What what the heck does that even mean? Um, And there now people are asking whether yesterday's decision was a soft intervention. Um, because we have to remember that
0: it's 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 like, you know, I mean in my if I were to put it politely, it's like saying, you know, Puran is a man where like my mother if I misbehave would smack me with a balan, right? Like <laughs> as she's cooking or with a spatula that's hot. But in modern terms, modern mothers put you in a timeout. Right. So it's like, it's like that. It's like, oh, you're misbehaving. I'll put you in a timeout. I'll count till 10. If you don't start behaving, you're going in a timeout. Mm -hmm. Balan is out, but that's the soft intervention
1: now. That's a soft intervention. So, and none of these really key institutions seem to be behaving within, you know, coloring within the line, so to speak, right? Uh, Who is uh, the arbiter? Who is the guarantor at this point in time? As I mentioned, Imran Khan tried. Uh, a few months ago, and then you know he we went all out talking about Mr. X and Y, as well as you know Emir uh, Jafar and Mir Sadik, and all of those things. Um, uh, at the same time, obviously it's clear that uh, the PLN you know, still doesn't have the full trust of the military establishment, and is really uh, you've seen from numerous judgments uh, that nor does it find favor within certain um, parts of the judicial establishment either. Um, uh, yesterday, uh, President Arif Alvi spoke about, you know, uh, for instance, the President House or his using his offices as. Um, or his, you know, his, um, as we, with civil society, with lawyers, with, and I think it's interesting where now you're going from the military establishment uh, to civil society, and I don't know how you decide which ragtag group would be a guarantor, an arbiter between various political factions and parties in order to guarantee a free and fair election, um, you know, I I think these are, we're just running out of ideas. And and for those
0: uh, who, you know, your reference to the president and his engagement, for those who may not know, because we're getting into the weeds, they put a trial balloon out saying, if there is, you know, a successor to Bajwa announced pre- and, you know, before, ahead Mm -hmm. of time, that may not be such a bad thing. So it's like almost like that Kayani playbook, like announce your successor and we'll deal with him, not you.
1: And then he went back on it. You know, there was a statement coming from, from the president. He said, well, we didn't really mean it. I didn't really mean it exactly that way. But I think because everybody knows the key right now is November, who's going to be the new army chief. Um, Imran Khan has indicated that he doesn't have he didn't really want Fez, uh, who is currently the corps commander of Bishawar. Uh, was former DGISI, in which his his uh, reappointment as DGISI and the appointment of the ISI chief was really sort of, if you think about it, and we spoke about this in January as well, which is where things started to unravel very quickly for the Imran Khan government. At that time, we were, I was still unsure whether this would result in uh, the split that we saw in March and April, but I guess clearly it was a bigger split than than I had calculated. Um, But uh, the point being that, does Bajwa come back? Uh, There are obviously, uh, as you mentioned as well, there's been lots of talk about how he might want to come back, he may not want to come back. Um, There is clearly a split uh, within the military establishment as well, support for Imran Khan versus uh, I would say neutrality I think it's also interesting where the DGISPR had to make several statements uh, in order to uh, uh, dispel rumors of the American conspiracy, and I think many people saw that as um, the Army establishment really being as neutral as it could possibly be at that time. But my question at that time was, is this uh, tactical uh, neutrality or strategic uh, uh, neutrality. Clearly, uh, one can see that it was tactical, it was suited at that time. So uh, the much of the inflation, much of the brickbats or much of the political costs that the current dispensation in particular, the PMLM is paying for the price for, does not go back to the military establishment because it's not openly, co- openly supporting um, uh, the uh, current political government coalition. So win-win for the military establishment. Um, however, who is going to get to decide the next army chief? Um, uh, one of the questions is: Could it could it be a caretaker? Um, you know, so so I'm not sure if I have answers to it, uh, some of these questions. You know, I think with Pakistani politics, you're you're left with more questions than answers. To be honest,
0: and and I have a more radical proposal on on the next chief or how chiefs are mm. selected. My view is the prime minister should just say. I don't get to pick just like the justices pick their own based on seniority or whatever. You go to your core commanders and pick your own successor, mm-hmm. insert a bit of, you know, political chaos within the institution, because mm-hmm. it does it does help the institution from this, you know, quote unquote, the establishment's uh, dominance, because the prime minister gets to select a chief. And then so the core commanders sort of have some level of, you know, you um, know, consensus or agreement or or Mm -hmm. unity within them, but Mm -hmm. we clearly know there are divides in their politics within them. So let them figure it out on their own on who they want to, among the commanders, be their chief and see how that plays out, right? Of course, it's a radical proposal, it's preposterous, it will sort insert all sort of chaos within the institution Mm -hmm. itself, but I (laughs) half jokingly say it because it's like, if the military is going to continue intervening in politics and it's the politician's job to also then say, you know what, we wash our hands clean of it. select your own chief and see how that plays out for you. Right. It's like, it's one of those things as well. But speaking but of. No Ghan- harm
1: with, but no harm in some radical offering radical solutions because yeah. uh, <clears throat> after yesterday's decision as well, there was a talk about, there was a uh, Faradullah Papar who was very close to um, Asif Ali Zardari, who's also a Senator, uh, you know, very, uh, Close to um, powerful circles, which is the, the Pakistan People's Party, is progressive and left-wing, um, <clears throat> as, and, and was um, you know close to uh, Asif during the 2008-2013 government uh, as well, has proposed that you know it's finally time to uh, that Parliament has more control over judicial appointments as well. So you know it's a season of radical solutions.
0: Yeah, and and for sure we should discuss that because clearly the 2007-8 compact is torn to shreds. So we don't know what comes next and you have to figure that out. But speaking of guarantors, this is something I've been thinking about as well. Historically, Pakistan has had, as we talked, the military establishment becomes a guarantor in these crises. Externally, there have been two or two major guarantors, the United States and Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. China more so, but China operates sort of, you know, doesn't really involve itself in these things uh, as mm-hmm. dramatically as the Saudis and the Americans have in the past, but they're also disinterested and disengaged, right? So it's like in Benazir meeting in the UAE with Condi mm-hmm. sort of brokering the dialogue and all of that. We all know that's part of history. That's not happening. And my read on this has been that even you, you mentioned the IMF several times. Well, we still need four to five billion from China and the Saudis combined and the Emiratis combined, right? Let's mm-hmm. say it's these three countries that would provide the, the gap that's still there after the IMF. They, from my read, has been would not want to overtly give that money because it may be seen as supporting the PDM at this instance or somebody, you know. So they're also like a bit neutral because they don't want to put themselves in a position where Khan or somebody else will say, oh, you supported them and not me, Mm. right. And so we're seeing that, that hesitancy play out and that's having an economic impact. But are you seeing any sort of like openings where external actors may just be like, hey, guys, you need to figure this out because you're an important country to the region. Or is it all because of the end of the war in Afghanistan, they're just like, we don't really care what you do, we just get your act together.
1: I I, I mean, my, my sense here is that um, all these actors that we've mentioned have that, that have, as you mentioned, played key roles, uh, even if you think about it, Qatar had a sort of key role in, in the Panama case with Nawaz Sharif, and then the letter that uh, was produced... Um, um, as well as uh, Saudi Arabia, as well as, uh, you, you know, um, U- U.S. It's it's Afghanistan is a story that is now over for much of the world. Uh, and it's really tragic to see that given the continuing humanitarian crisis there. Um, Pakistan, as you well know, is obviously trying to negotiate and and General Affairs, Peshawar uh, Kokamander has been a sort of key interlocutor as well as um, many clerics with, from Pakistan as well just went and really nothing is happening on that front. But, but the point here is that Afghanistan and Pakistan or AFPAC, as you see, I think that story is pretty much over. Everybody's moved. Uh, everybody's most concerned about energy, Russia, Ukraine. You know, the story has shifted elsewhere. it's. it's it, I remember very clearly as well, you know, as a journalist, so much interest post 9/11 in, in this region, and then the shift to um, a post Arab Spring to uh, the Middle East, and now it's Europe um, as well as the energy crisis. So, so I think um, the interest has waned as well. Um, uh, friendly countries are also exhausted. They have their own concerns. Um, they have the other. They have other issues. I, I don't think anybody really wants to intervene openly or or covertly at this point in time either. So. Um, just waiting and watching to see where pakistan goes or where the internal politics takes it um where where we have to deal with this mess ourselves really i think as, as far as i'm concerned and the problem at the moment is that there's so much distrust I, i'm going to mention mention judicial um or the politicization of the judiciary as well because i think the distrust expressed by the coalition government on the judiciary uh, is is Somewhat founded as well, especially look at the um, judgment that came out yesterday that contradicted another judge- judgment that was authored in part by the same uh, judges. So, I, uh, you know, um, the same bench hearing certain political cases. Um, other judges, including a retired <clears throat> a justice of the Supreme Court, has, has, has mentioned this as an issue as well, where these political cases are taken up by the same bench. Uh, there is no ideological variety. There is distrust uh, in, in within the judiciary as well. Uh, and obviously on the part of political parties, particularly the uh, National Unity Government and its, and its uh, members at the moment, uh, there is clearly a divide or some, some divide within the military establishment. The political players uh, are not willing or able to come to one table just because right now it's, it's, it's pretty much about it's a toss of the dice, right? I mean, it's a game that is about win or lose. It isn't about compromise. And I know a lot of people are talking about finding some kind of common economic agenda. But the question really is, what is the minimum economic agenda that can be agreed upon? Continuation of of the IMF and those policies? I think every political party needs to have some kind of differentiated economic uh, uh, agenda in order to be different from one another, for instance. I, I think that really takes away the beauty of democracy and the variety and diversity that you find within political parties uh, and between political parties. So, I mean, that would be my question to you. Is there is there a minimum econ- economic agenda that a lot of commentators have been talking about that political parties can agree on uh, in order for Pakistan or the state to continue? Uh, you know, that's a question I have for you, there I'm going to throw it <laughs> back to you.
0: Um, no, I don't think there can be one. And I think the reason for this is not that they can come to an agreement, I think it's an incentives mismatch, right? In, mm-hmm. in a win or lose scenario, the way you've sort of articulated it, which is cutthroat, which is winner takes mm-hmm. all, loser goes to jail or something else happens to them, right? Goes into oblivion, essentially. That's, that's what they're both, it's a maximalist position, right? It's a maximalist mm-hmm. fight. Now, in that fight, this is something I've been thinking about and, and sort of trying to wrap my head around is if that is the political system that they're part of, then, and then on the economic side, we have a country that has a gross financing need at $150 billion in the next mm-hmm. five years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's <laughs> 150, that's the cumulative figure. And, you know, yeah. yes, a lot of this will be met by Uh, aid that comes in, remittances, exports, but it's still roughly ballpark figure 20 to 25 billion gap over the next five years that we have to fill somehow, right? Let's assume that that's the ballpark. That situation requires whoever is in power to make very difficult politically costly choices. Now, in a scenario where, you know, even if we assume that some, go ahead, no, I'm just going to
1: sort of interject just with one thing. We've seen what happened uh, to the PMLN once it made those difficult, costly uh, choices as well. Who wants to, who wants to be beaten, uh, you know, beaten to a pulp at the at the hustings, right? Um, and, and go into a by-election, a local body election, with that kind of reform-oriented agenda, or you know, some. You know, so I just want to point yeah. that out.
0: So so again, that's what I was getting to is that if if the stakes are maximalist and whoever comes to power has to make those tough choices. Then whoever is in opposition, let's assume Imran Khan wins with a two third, close to two third majority. The PMLN is facing accountability and all sorts of things. The People's Party, the same thing. They're the two biggest rivals and Imran Khan is going after them while doing the reforms that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Then on the flip side, the incentive will be to undermine Imran Khan because you want to save yourself, right? Otherwise mm-hmm. you're screwed essentially. So you will do the petrol bomb, mengai march type shenanigans that we've seen in the past because it's a game of survival, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: if you're the PDM and you're trying to sort of fully neutralize the PTI, who you believe to be quote unquote fascist, I don't like that, the use of that term, but that's what mm, they yeah. position them as. So then Khan will be incentivized to do what he does as well on the flip side, right? In that scenario, there will never be a, a, a position where, you know, You have a government that makes those tough choices and you and I are talking about loses political capital and the political players in the game basically say, you know what, we're going to keep agitating in Parliament and in the assemblies and wherever criticize you however we can and try to win elections. But we're not going to undermine your rule by colluding with APARA or colluding with GHQ or trying to take you to the Supreme Court and drag you through and destabilize your government, right? That is not going to be the incentive. And so mm-hmm. the incentive structure is less about, and, and also let's add another layer to this, is that the this is an elite game of thrones. So they don't get impacted by 35% inflation or 35% depreciation of the rupee, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The ordinary citizen does, but the ordinary citizen is not like these people, right? So they can afford to play this game because they're dollarized they have assets abroad they live in bunny gala or fancy houses drive around in land cruisers or get malik raza's jet to take them to saoundbad <laughs> <bath> for a <laughs> taking ceremony right so so they, they don't feel that pain so again it's it's an incentive disconnect and mismatch which if that is the situation the thing i'm thinking about is like well you'll never have that stability or that minimum reform agenda being carried out Because the incentive, it's a prisoner's dilemma, the incentive will always be to destroy the legitimacy of whoever is doing that. Um, And I think that's where we are. And that needs a political compact. It's not a minimum economic agenda compact.
1: OK, so the political compact, do you see that happening either? Do you see uh, Imran Khan and Shahbaz Sharif meeting with uh, Asif Ali Zardari and Bilawal Bhutto sitting at one table? Can you visualize it?
0: No, it, I, I don't I think.
1: I don't think so. I, I, I certainly can't. Uh, because um, it was clear that there was an opportunity after twenty eighteen, and and to be fair to the um, national unity government of the parties that are part of it, they did offer that kind of sort of, um, um you know, a, a kind of a sort of um, a, what would they call it a. Um, you know, I'm missing out on words here, but um, I remember Shahbashreef and Asif Ali Zandari said, you know, let's agree not to sort of mess with the economy at this point. And and they said that in the floor of the house in parliament, but Imran Khan, uh, he has authority and tendencies and has a very, very little regard for parliament or parliamentary process, uh, wanted to sort of crush opponents. And and that's the way he plays. Um, And it succeeds when he's in opposition, it doesn't work so well when you're in government. so minimum economic agenda without political compromise, we can we don't see that happening. But I think what you're missing is another sort of key. Does any government in Pakistan, does any prime minister have any guarantee that it will fulfill uh, complete its his or her term or complete term uh, for five years? So you're going to go for short-term populist measures. Uh, Remember what this current finance minister, who was finance minister in 2018 as well, Miftah Ismail, he obviously had a very sort of populist kind of uh, election kind of budget as well. Um, Well, if you look at Imran Khan, withdrew petrol subsidies as soon as he knew his government was under threat. So I think we can also agree that until all these sort of key institutions play their constitutional role, um, I wouldn't say that it would guarantee political stability, but at least you would give back some sense of the of the power of the vote to people because they get to elect and they get to withdraw uh, their favor or support. Right now, it's all about who the establishment is patronizing or withdrawing patronage for. From uh, you know, uh, at the moment, for instance, I'll give you an example um, in Islamabad. Some of the the talk uh, from the current sort of national duty government is that you know, we just wanted a playing level playing field. So we, we didn't ask you to support us the way you supported Imran Khan. And and honestly speaking, nobody's made amends for it or talked about it openly, including, including I would say that uh, the current dispensation also has an opportunity to sort of talk about that much more openly, but they haven't. Uh, anyway, but, you know, we just want a level playing field. We don't want that same kind of support. it'll Give us a free hand at least, which I don't think, you know, I, I would say that right now it's, it's really so... No government in Pakistan, no political government in Pakistan has a free hand because of patronage um, and and therefore resort to short-term populist measures. uh, Because, you know, five years down the line, we're not going to be voted in because of performance. Uh, We're going to be kicked out in one way or one form or the other or undermined uh, because we fell out of favor.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. And I would, uh, to your patronage point, I would add that this patronage also is the structural problem with the broader economy as well, right? So if you Mm -hmm. talk about the types of changes that are needed, for example, let's just look at one thing. 23% of Pakistan's GDP roughly is Mm -hmm. agriculture. Agriculture contributes 0.1% in taxes. Now, if, you, if the thing we're talking about, which is how do you rescue this economy sustainably, needs to be solved, you have to tax the heck out of that sector. Patronage works in a way that even if uh, the military and the judiciary say we're staying out of this goal rule, the prime minister may lose all sorts of uh, friends in parliament and in the assemblies because they would have to start paying taxes. Does that stabilize or destabilize the government? For sure destabilizes the government, right? So that's one element. Let's say, let's add another element. Let's assume the military says we're staying out um, and the next chief says don't come to me for these issues. Well, if the prime minister then says announ- announces with his finance minister that we're going to reform the economy such that the real estate sector does not become what is, is no longer what it is. While well, the DHA is the biggest, one of the biggest players in the real estate market. <laughs> yeah. what, what does the chief do when his core commanders and his retired people are coming at him saying, hey, these guys are demanding taxes, uh, which means we have to sell our cushy plots uh, at a loss. And I don't want to do that. What happens mm-hmm. then? Right. So it, it's these layers of, of issues because it's a kleptocracy, something I've talked to so many people about on this podcast. And, and if, if that's the case, then even that modicum of stability that you just elaborated on, even if that pipe dream is achieved, there are more issues um, that will mm-hmm. come to the surface after that. Right. So, yes, I agree. Free and fair elections are what's needed. It's a long, drawn out process. And, and, and the only way to achieve that process, to start off this process, is for institutions and the men, and it's all men who lead these institutions, to just take a chill pill and do what their job <laughs> is and ignore everything else, like yeah, it, 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 it's not the business of the military establishment to signal whether they are or aren't neutral. Just go defend the country and do your job. The Supreme Court has a backlog of cases. Uh, the judiciary needs reform. The Chief Justice should focus on that, not on damn funds or reinterpreting Article sixty three A or whatever else <laughs> he pleases. Um, and I think that's the starting point, right? But I I don't see the incentives for that happening, because it is fun for them to do these kinds of things that they're not supposed to do in the first place.
1: I mean, absolutely. Um, uh, The patronage politics plays out at various levels. Um, And um, who has the most power, who has the most patronage to dole out? Uh, Obviously, it is would be institutions that remain. Uh, I would say that the that that's why the broad term has been establishment, right? Uh, so it doesn't matter which army chief comes and goes. Uh, chief justices have a lot of power within the domain as well. They get a lot of perks and privileges as well. Uh, so there's been a lot of talk, talk about, for instance, um, there was a story about how certain executive privileges are being given to bureaucrats as well. Um, but, but the point that I'm trying to make, and I think. Uh, I want to go back to that. We were talking about political legitimacy, which you can only get with free and fair elections. We've talked about sort of how that could happen and then ruled it out as something that's unlikely to happen. But here's the thing, um, and, and you mentioned this, and everybody's talking about it. Free and fair, fair elections are absolutely uh, key, but economic stability may be sort of in the short term, maybe a greater priority at this point in time. And politi- political legitimacy or a free and fair election is not going to guarantee the kind of uh, political stability that you need for economic stability. And that's another infor- unfortunate reality for which you know, I wish I wish had a sort of more positive outlook at the moment. I don't see that happening.
0: No, I agree. And I think um, this is my last question to you. And, and I'll start with a comment and then ask this of you as well. Yeah. Another yeah. thing that I, you know, when I talk <laughs> especially elites in Pakistan, and I tell them, look, the time is running out, like on the economic front, you don't have a lot of great options anymore, and you need to do something uh, to, to rescue the situation. Um, their immediate responses, uh, at the last response is, well, we're Pakistan, we're a nuclear-armed country, people will bail us out because we're too big of a problem otherwise. And I, you know, my view has been the world has changed, it's an increasingly multipolar world even the saudis and the emiratis are looking for roi they're looking for what mm-hmm. do you offer in return the chinese are sort of in their own mess with zero you know, covid and real estate problems and all of that but they're also sick and tired they gave you 40 billion dollars and now you want more like come on right <laughs> so uh, you know the the world has changed and i think the playbook Pakistani elites has not, and I think that's another major blind spot that they have, because from what I'm hearing from you know sitting at DC, when I talk to people who look at the Middle East, who look at China or East Asia or India, um, they all are of the view that you know that old playbook of great power politics is no longer going to work, especially among the traditional allies Pakistan has had, because they've seen through it, they've been through these cycles before, and the world has shifted, and. And I don't see that recognition sort of being internalized in Islamabad either. I don't know if you're sort of seeing this uh, this evolution of perspective, but I think that again is a big dangerous blind spot that they have thinking that, oh, they will bail us out and we don't need to restructure our own economy because they've historically bailed us out.
1: I think the closest analogy to that, Uzair, would actually be the city of Karachi where I'm sitting in. Uh, which has been neglected, uh, which has been treated very poorly uh, for decades by but subs- by, by you know many governments, whether it's local governments or whether it's been by um, uh, the provincial government as well as the you know uh, federal government as well, uh, promising bailout bailout packages or packages, and nothing has been done, and then when you have clearly what is extreme weather which is the rains or this particular monsoon and then the monsoon in 2020 which is battering infrastructure which is really i mean it's causing billions of rupees of loss and damage as well as a a loss of of uh, life as well um and you can see that this is decades of neglect um and the climate climate change as well as rains it's just gonna it's gonna keep coming back to haunt us and we won't have we don't have enough time to not just repair, but prepare ourselves for the next disaster. So I think it's pretty much the same. I think it's a great analogy, given that Karachi is supposed to be a sort of microcosm of Pakistan. It's a great analogy for Pakistan as well, where, as you pointed out, this whole concept of a bailout, friendly countries, some global um, event that could potentially mean that Pakistan is important again because of our strategic geolocation. It's not going to happen. I think, for instance, I'm just going to give you another example in terms of energy. I think energy uh, economics is going to sort of also uh, post Russia, Ukraine, gas and petrol and and coal and whatnot is actually also shaping foreign policy as well. So, for instance, Venezuela and the U.S. uh, coming together despite being, you know, um, um, uh, being at odds with one another because of the opportunity, uh, given the Russia-Ukraine war as well, you've seen Iran as well. Um, So I would say that Pakistan really needs a grip on how international politics is changing and our place in it and what we could potentially offer. Uh, Right now, we are, you know, sure, we're a nuclear armed country, but Um, India, for instance, is still a stronger economy. Um, You see that uh, the Saudis, for instance, and Biden himself, who talked about Khashoggi and human rights, going to Saudi Arabia because he needed to, uh, because of, of obviously, the energy crisis. So, I mean, that's a reality. What can Pakistan offer uh, at the moment, you know, as a small country that's obviously constantly in debt and constantly needs bailout packages, uh, maybe nuclear-armed, but really the, the threat isn't from its, uh, you know, uh, nuclear arms, because I remember that was the specter that was also also raised as well a lot where, oh, what are the um, uh, militant organizations take over Pakistan's nuclear facilities? I don't think that that's really a, a question that gets asked anymore. So Pakistan, given its dire economic conditions at the moment where we don't see reforms in the horizon, I think we really need to think about what Pakistan has to offer. Um, and, and there was a push towards geoeconomics um, uh, Army the army chief, General Kamar Bajwa, talked about it. There's a lot of talk about uh, geoeconomics within Islamabad think tanks as well. But then, you know, that's that was two years ago. And here we are uh, still struggling and geoeconomics is in nowhere in sight. We're curtailing. Uh, we have to, cur- you know, we're, we're not in a position to export more at the moment, uh, given that we're also struggling uh, in terms of the energy crisis, uh, supplying energy to industries as well as you know, spurring sort of more export-oriented, um, which for which we also need imports as well, because we don't make a lot. We also have to import wheat. That's what one of the uh, several years on, after the Imran Khan government imported wheat, and there was obviously an inquiry report as well, we're still importing wheat. Uh, we're actually, and this is interesting, where we may be importing wheat from Russia, where it was from Ukraine as well. So the point here is that, what do we have to offer? We really need to rethink this, and, and how do we get there? Uh, given that the current political crisis, given the appointment of the army chief and continuity of policy seems really sort of far off on the horizon. I don't think anybody's in a position to think about that, even if some of them, you know, let's not dismiss everybody in Islamabad at the moment, but, you know, even if somebody was.
0: Yeah, no, I think, and, and that's really the tragedy and we can end on this tragic note is that if if you have people fighting over uh, who gets to rule um, for how long and what the rules are going to be that will allow them to stay in power, If that's the agenda um, that everyone's focused on. Then all of the things you and I just talked about over the last 20-30 minutes that are important, more fundamental issues mm-hmm. Pakistan faces, they fall by the wayside, right? And the answer typically is, if you're Imran Khan, <laughs> or corruption is the biggest problem, or if you're, frankly, uh the PMLN, if you're somebody like Mr. Ismail, power mm-hmm. prices it's like circular debt. You can't that <laughs> you can products, do that. right. You can't yeah. do that. Um so you, you talk in like these broad uh terms as part of your strategy to again mm-hmm. like you know blind the people. And then expect that they will be okay when you tell them I have eyesight and I have to make these tough decisions.
1: <laughs> um, you
0: get destroyed the way you the PML ended in Punjab recently. And I think that's my biggest fear is that there is a confluence of crises that are striking at Pakistan, including climate change, which is impacting wheat, as you mentioned, including the emergence of a multipolar world, including friendly countries saying they're looking elsewhere, uh, and they're recalibrating their relationships. And I think Pakistan's elites, it's, it's sort of kleptocratic establishment, so to speak, um, is stuck in this warped view of their own sense of importance right, to the world. And I think they need a reality check and maybe uh, it takes a default. Uh, for that reality check to happen. I wouldn't, I would be devastated if it comes to that type of crisis in Pakistan, because we don't want a Lebanon or Sri Lanka happening. Mm -hmm. But when I talk to these elites, the way they react to these points that we've been raising and questioning, they don't seem to grasp even the importance, at least when I do grasp the importance and a lot of people Mm -hmm. I I speak with who listen to the podcast who comment understand the, the scale and nature of this crisis Uh, But those at the helm of affairs, I don't think they do. Um, So we'll muddle along and we'll see where we end up.
1: I mean, I want to point out that uh, Pakistan is going to celebrate its 75th um, uh, independence in August and August being key in in terms of where politics will go as well. And we're still talking about the rules of the game uh, in terms of politics and who plays what role. It's all in the Constitution. You know, nobody needs to reinvent the wheel. it's, it's written down, it's not even an unwritten verbal constitution uh, such as the UK, it's, it's all down there. But you know, here we are um, where politics is clearly broken uh, and, and on two sort of extremes. Uh, and the economy is also pretty broken as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't seem to be a sort of uh, think about a long-term fix.
0: No, I agree. And so we'll see where things go and whether we have some semblance of free and fair elections and some sort of end to this political saga. I know you're tired of this. I am tired of this, but I'm sure the audience is tired of this. Um, uh, But I don't see it ending anytime soon. And I think you will agree. And on that note. Uh, we will end and maybe have you another six months time when elections are done and see uh, whether we were on point or not in the fact that, you know, the saga will continue. And it's like Mm -hmm. a long drawn out trilogy that is not ending anytime soon. So um, Amber, thank you so much for taking out the time again and, and, and for sharing your insights and analysis with us.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And on that note, I'd say, you know, if you're going to use a Game of Thrones analogy, which you did, Yeah, so George R.R. Martin hasn't written uh, the last few uh, books that he needs to write. And uh, yeah, that's Pakistan.
0: Yeah, (laughs) take
1: care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.